Praise the Lord. How great is the Lord. God is amazing. Hallelujah. He deserves all the praise, all the glory, and all the honor. Beloved, I invite you respectfully to open your Bibles together with me to the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8. And as we remain standing, we'll read from verse 27 to verse 38. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verses 27 to verse 38. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Amen. Father, I come before you now in the name of Jesus. And I just ask, oh God, that you would speak this morning. God, I thank you that you're present in this place and that your people are surrounding your word. And God, I just pray, God, that you would give us open minds and open ears this morning, God. Help us to prepare our hearts to receive what it is that you have for us. And I ask this in the wonderful and beautiful name of Jesus and all of God's people said. Please be seated. If you're a parent like me, you realize that uh, kids can be great at asking questions. Uh, I have four kids, as most of you already know. Um, I have a, a boy, his name is Silas, and Silas is, is going to be five this November. Silas likes to ask questions. Silas likes to come to me and say, but why? And so, you know, when we're, when we're in the basement and we're fixing something in the basement, like our foundation mall that was cracked and that needed a repair, um, we, were, we were working and we had someone working at our house and he asked me, why, why do we need to fix that? And I said, because we need to keep the water out of the basement. And he said, but why? And I said, well, because we need to play down here so that we don't have water around us. And he said, but why? And then I said, well, because we're going to get wet and then we're going to have to clean it up. And he said, but why? And then I kept going on and on and he kept asking, but why? But why? And you know, that's like the endless spiral of no return with kids. You know, when they just keep asking why and you get frustrated and that's where you have to, you know, you have to bear the fruit of the spirit because, you know, they keep asking you why, 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 and then you just look at your wife, you do one of these and you don't know what to say anymore, right? Kids ask questions, they're big questioners and you know what, in this world in which we're living, there are a lot of questions being asked right now. 
A lot of questions being asked about why and why and why. Why did Ukraine get attacked? Why is Russia attacking? Why are the people of the world upside down right now with all these problems, political issues? Why doesn't NATO have a better answer? Why doesn't President Biden have a better answer? Why doesn't the world do something about the situation that we're in right now? Why, why, why? And we get into this endless spiral of whys and we're searching for answers. And if you're like me, you'll flip on the the phone or the TV or something and just try to get a glimpse of what's going on in the world to, to see if you could get an answer to the question why. Why are things happening the way they're happening? And you want to see if there's an answer from the White House or if there's an answer from the United Nations or if there's an answer from NATO, if there's an answer coming from somewhere because we need answers. We need solutions. And you get into the spiral of trying to figure out what to do and what's going to happen. And my fear is that we begin to lose sight of some other questions that that we should be asking and perhaps some questions that Jesus himself asks us during this season of time. You know, Jesus in the scriptures in the New Testament asked a lot of questions. In fact, he asked over 300 questions in his teachings and his sermons. And a lot of the questions that he asked were not even answered. And in fact, he probably gave only a couple of answers to the 300 plus questions that he asked his hearers. Why? Because when Jesus taught in the New Testament, one of the methods in which he actually taught was by asking questions. He used parables, he used stories, he used illustrations, but he asked a lot of questions in his sermon in his sermons. And the first question that he asks us here in this passage this morning is, what will it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What will it profit a man? See, this is the first type of question that Jesus is asking, and it's a a question about values. This morning, I want to turn your attention not to questioning about what's happening in the world, although that's legitimate and it's important and it has its place, but I want to turn your mind and your focus to the questions that Jesus asks you this morning, the questions that Jesus asks me this morning. The first question that he asks you and I this morning in this passage is, as a disciple, what value is it in gaining the whole world but losing your soul, losing What is valuable? The soul is made up of the mind, of the will, and of the emotions. Jesus is speaking to us about the things that really matter to God. Do you remember how Jesus was teaching his disciples and he said, you will love the Lord with all of your heart, your what? Your soul. You see, in the thought of Jesus, in the thinking of Jesus, the soul is so important to Jesus, to God. And so Jesus comes to his hearers and says, can you really give something in exchange for your soul? This is a very relevant and important question today, especially in the West, because in the West, we have so many toys and trinkets and things that we have grasping us and and our attention. So many temptations and so many things that come our way to try to get us off course so that we can just invest in the things of this world and be earthly minded and not kingdom minded, not spiritually minded. And the Bible is clear this morning that Jesus has another perspective to share with us in asking us the question. The question is, do you realize how much God values your soul? And so the question, another question or a subsequent question to that question is, how's your soul doing? How much are you investing? How much am I investing in my soul? What am I putting in my mind? What am I putting in my thoughts, in my emotions? And where is my will directed as part of that soul? You know, Jesus is so able and he's so capable of doing amazing things and changing lives and transforming hearts. I was on the phone with with a minister friend the other day. 
And I was talking to him about just what, what has happened in the world and things that are going on. And he said, you know, I was reading a book about some things that happened in Auschwitz in the early 20th century during the World War era. He said, I was reading about a situation in which some people in the concentration camps in occupied Poland, which was Auschwitz's operational from around 1940 onwards. And, and it, you know, these people were just perversely tortured in the concentration camps. And he was saying, I was, I was reading about how how this psychologist was brought into one of the camp houses in Auschwitz after some people in the concentration camp were brutally tortured. They had developed psychological issues in the mind. And they could not function properly. And the psychologist came in there and he took a list with a checklist and, and he said, well, I'm going to do this and I'm going to try this and I'm going to try that. And he spoke to them and he had them do all of these exercises and after hours and hours of doing this exercise, nothing happened. And those people who were in Auschwitz and who had been, been just affected so negatively by, by all the torture, you know, they, they remained the same and they, they, could not, they could not function. They were vegetables, afraid, shaking. And then there was another house in the camp, which he told me about. A Christian was brought in, and he started to read the Bible to the, the people in Auschwitz. And he started to talk to them about Jesus. And he started to say, you know, how much God loves humanity. And he, and he taught them about prayer. And they began to sing and do other things in the house there. And as they were doing these things, the man who was there reading the Bible, the follower of Christ, began to notice a change, a gradual change that took place. And he kept doing this in the house and reading the scriptures and reading the Psalms and reading the Gospels. And after a while, he noticed that this group in that house in Auschwitz was a lot different. And actually, at the end of it all, they were completely and miraculously transformed and healed after their torture. Because the word of God has power to change a mind. The presence of Jesus has power to change a life. And you see, the most important question for you and I this morning is what does it profit us if we try to gain everything in this world and have it all, but we don't know Christ and we don't have that intimate relationship with him if our soul is suffering, if our soul is empty, and if our soul is depleted of anything that is good. You know, I, you know I've been watching the news and I, I just applaud the leader of Ukraine personally. Zelensky, what an awesome example of a leader to stay behind and fight for his country, to take up arms and to say, I'm not leaving, I'm not leaving. Son of Jewish parents, lawyer by profession, actor following that, and he decided to stay in Ukraine. He could have been picked up by the Americans. When I think of him, my mind inevitably goes to Jesus because when I think about Jesus, I think about the fact that when he came to the earth, he didn't accept an easy route. In, in fact, he took the hard route, and he taught us that if the world hates him, the world will also hate us. But you know what the problem with the West is? Is that in the West, the place where we live here now, the world is created, the world is tailored, the society is tailored to grasp our attention so that we are mesmerized by the things of society so that our eyes won't be on Christ but on the things of the world. And Jesus is trying to change our thinking this morning to get us to start looking upwards to the things of heaven. The Bible says, set your minds on things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. 
The second question that Jesus asks us this morning, it's a question pertaining to your condition. The first one was a question about values. Do you value the world? Do you value the things of God? The second question is a question about your condition. In John chapter 5, in verses 1 to 15, we read a story about a man who was at a pool called Bethesda for over 38 years. And he was there, and Jesus came and healed him around the, the Sabbath. And it, the Bible says that there was a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed by the pool. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years, says verse 5. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, verse 6, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The second question that we get this morning in the gospel is, do you want to get well? Now, I know I'm talking to a church audience, and somebody might ask, well, why, are you, why are you asking this question to a church group when we've been baptized, we know the Lord, we, we know the Bible, we go to prayer meetings, we've memorized scripture. I'll be confident in telling you this morning that I know that not 100% of people watching, maybe in these pews sitting here this morning, are 100% well. There are people who need help. There are people who are in a condition that need help. Maybe you've been in a condition for 30 years or 38 years or 45 years or 10 years or five years. I don't know what it is, but God is asking you this morning, do you finally want to make progress? Do you want, you want to finally move forward? Do you want to be in a different state than you were last year? Do you want this year to be a new year? Maybe there's an unforgiveness in you. Maybe there's a self-pity in you. Maybe somebody did something to you five years ago that you can't, you can't forget. And it's gnawing at you, it's eating at you, and it's just constraining your soul. And you can't figure out why you can't pray. And you can't figure out why things don't, you know, don't go well for you. And you have unforgiveness and bitterness in your heart. Do you want to be made well? Maybe somebody hurt you really badly. Maybe you were falsely accused. Maybe somebody did something to you a long time ago that caused much pain. Maybe you had unmet expectations, failed desires and expectations in your life. Your goals weren't achieved. And you're sitting in that state and you're thinking about the past and your mind is on the past constantly. The question for you this morning is, do you want to be made well? Jesus is really, really concerned about your well-being. He's really caring about your state of mind, your state of heart, and your state of of being and your welfare. We read in the scripture so much about this thing called shalom, the peace of God, which not just, it doesn't just refer to an inner emotional well-being, but, but holistically shalom talks about just being, it being well with you in all aspects of life. Body, soul, spirit, all facets of life. And that's the God we serve, a God who cares about every single facet of your being. That's why the Bible says that he counts every hair that is numbered on your, on your head. When you wake up in the morning and get your head off the pillow, and when you use that blow dryer, you might not notice that that piece of hair falls off, but God counts it. When you're by your bedside and you're crying for your loved one or your children, and that tear falls down, God collects that tear. When you're in that room with the bosses and when you're in that room with all the angry people in the corporate world and you don't know where to turn because the solution doesn't come, God is with you in that room. Because God cares about his people and he cares about your condition. 
The question is, do you want to be well? I'm sure the answer of most of us is yes, I want to be well. Well, then what must I have to do? If there's a sin problem, the Bible ta- teaches us firstly to confess and to repent. If we confess our sins, he is just and faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. First John chapter 1, 9. And you know, the repentance that we talk about, the repentance that we speak about from this pulpit is a repentance that is caused by the goodness of God. It is the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance, says Romans chapter 2. It's us seeing how good God is, how wonderful God is, how awesome God is that leads us to repentance. Yes, you know, consider the kindness and the severity of the Lord. But ultimately, it's the patience of our Lord that leads us to the repentance that we so desperately need in this generation. It's God who's waiting and God who woos us and calls us. It's God who answers us in our depression and our fears that leads us to the repentance that we so desperately need. Do you want to be made well? Do you want to be made well? There was a song that was written a long time ago, and it goes like this. It is well with my soul. And the man who wrote it was a man who actually suffered after losing family members on a shipwreck. And he wrote that song after they had drowned and they were lost. And that tells me and that tells us that it's totally possible to have a well-being state, to be well with the Lord, regardless of the circumstances. Our circumstances don't determine our outlook on life, our state of being spiritually, but it's the presence of God inside, the Spirit of God working in us that determines who we are in this world. It's him working in us, him doing something in us, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the problems, regardless of the fear, which is the third question, the question about fear. In Matthew chapter 8, 26, we see that the disciples are on the sea and they're there afraid and Jesus comes to them in Matthew chapter 8 and he has a question for them in that chapter. Matthew chapter eight with verse 26. He was in the boat, his disciples followed him and there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves but he was asleep. And they went and woke him in verse 25 saying, save us Lord for we are perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid? A third question for you and I is a question about fear. Why are you afraid? Jesus has questions for us. He has serious, life-changing questions for us. The third question is, why are you afraid? Was he not with the disciples up until that point? Had he not shown himself, proven himself to them in the miracles that he had done? Had he not proven to them that he can cleanse a leper, that he can heal a Mary? Hadn't he not proven to them that he can turn water into wine? Had he not shown his glory to them? He had. And the question for them and for us is, why are we still afraid? Why are you still afraid? Maybe you've been walking with the Lord for 10 years or 15 years or 20 years. Maybe somebody, the Lord, perhaps needs to ask you, and I, I believe he is, why are you still afraid? 
Have you not seen the works of the Lord in your life? Have you not seen his provisions? Have you not seen his guidance, his goodness in your life? I want to show you Hebrews 13.5 this morning. Hebrews 13.5. Let's see what it says there. Hebrews 13.5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have for he has said, wonderful promise, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Why are you still afraid? Why are we still afraid? I was reading an article on churchleaders.com and one commentator mentioned that there are specific types of fears that churchgoers have these days. Congregants that go to churches. The first type of fear he mentions is the fear of shame. The, the, the fear of being ashamed. What will people do if they find out? What will the church say? What will the pastor say? What will the community do about me? And part of that fear, I'm not going to say it's totally justified, but part of that fear, I believe, is the result of the culture that, it's, that has left its imprint on people today in our church communities. We have what's called a cancel culture, don't we? And if you actually do a little bit of studying on the cancel culture in which we live in, you'll find that it's not a new thing. It's not something that's been around just for a couple of years. In fact, it, goes, it dates back, back to the Greeks when they, they would have an honor-shame system and civilians, if they would disobey the laws and decrees of society, they would be canceled. They would be banished from the cities of Greece. But now it's packaged and it's wrapped up in different ways and you've got the social media platforms. People get deplatformed. They're canceled, right? They're cast out of the, the news uh, studios. They don't want to be uh, allowed to, to, to speak publicly. And that honor, shame type of culture, if you will, because that's what it is, and it's very similar to the eastern part of the world where there is a very strong honor, shame culture, where community dictates what's right and wrong, especially in Islam and those, those types of religions. That type of culture has started to infiltrate our ranks and churches today. And it's more about what I can do to keep a good mask on and keep up with the Joneses and look good in front of others. But oh my, if I ever say something about my personal weakness or about my problem, or about her problem, about his problem, it's over. And we forget that the church of Jesus Christ is a hospital. We forget that the church of Jesus Christ is a place of healing. It's a place of restoration where the people of God come around the broken, the destitute, and they lift them up and they say, we're here to pray for you, to bless you in the name of Jesus. Fear of shame has to go. Confess your sins to one another, says James. Some fear lo looking foolish. Public speakers, right? Standing on platforms. People don't want to look foolish. The Bible says that God chooses the weak things of the world to shame the wise. God's way of working is not our way of working. God can use a little girl like my daughter Kate who prays at night for the missionaries and those prayers can reach them. 
God uses your hands when you go to your children in their cribs, when you place them on your children at night, and he uses your prayers to reach them. God uses the things that are not so illustrious, so beautiful, so visible. He uses things behind the scenes. He uses the prayers of the grandmother and the grandfather who pray for 15 or 20 years or 25 years for their grandchildren until they know the Lord. God uses those things. Fear of uncertainty. People are uncertain in the church these days. As if God has left the church. As if God is no longer interested in his church. Yet we see Jesus in the midst of his churches in the book of Revelation. And he has a word for all of them. Fourthly, people are afraid of opposition according to this article. They're afraid of what opposition might bring in the world. They want to evangelize and they want to tell others about Jesus, but they don't know what to do about opposition. They don't know what to say to people if they say, I don't care about your gospel. I don't care about the message that you have. I don't care about the Bible. People don't know what to do about that. Yet the Bible is clear that Jesus himself faced opposition as he was ministering in Israel. And he said, if they hated me, they will hate you. A fifth thing that people are afraid of is pain. According to this article, there are people in the church who are afraid of suffering and pain. Yet the Bible tells us that through many hardships we must enter the kingdom of heaven. When you signed up as a follower of Christ, you signed up in the army of Christ, you were not written down with, with ink, you were written down with the blood of Jesus and you were enlisted in the army of God. And my friends, when you did that, you signed up for war. You signed up for a time of battle and the battle wages today and it intensifies every single day as we approach the coming of Jesus. I would say maybe a sixth thing that people are afraid of today is death. There are so many people who are afraid of dying. There are so many people afraid of what's on the other side. Yet the Bible tells us that the death of the righteous is sweet. That when we leave this life, what it is simply is stepping right into the arms of Jesus. Why are people so afraid today? Ed Welch wrote a book, When People Are Big and God Is Small. And in it he says this, the person who fears God will fear nobody else. The, the person who fears God will fear nobody else. If you learn the fear of the Lord, you learn how to fear the Lord, then you will begin to, to see him for who he really is and with the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom according to the book of Proverbs. And where does wisdom come from? It comes from the word of God. And so really what that means is that as we continue in this book and read it and know who God is, the fear, the respect that we have for our Lord grows and the fear that we have for people is depleted and it diminishes. At times God calms the storm, someone says. But other times... He calms his child and lets the storm rage. You see, God doesn't always just, you know, end a storm right away. 
Biblically, we see that God allows things to happen to his people and the storm rages on and people begin to pray and they begin to ask God, why? I'm so afraid, I'm so scared. And they, they're saying, why are you taking so long? And God, why is this cancer happening? And why is that problem happening? Why don't I have a job? Why don't I have this? And these are legitimate, legitimate prayers and requests. And they ask why. And they don't realize that all the while, as the storm rages, God is doing something in their lives. God is changing them. Beloved, if God doesn't change your circumstance, know that he's changing you. If your circumstance doesn't change, at least you're being changed. And God's greatest goal for our lives, for you and I, is that we resemble the image of his son. And guess what? His son was perfected through suffering. His son went through the valley of the shadow of death. And we're, if we're like Christ, Paul says, I want to be the one in the fellowship of his suffering. I want to be identified with Jesus. Whether I preach the gospel and somebody hates me, or I just go to somebody and talk to them about Jesus, and they oppose me very nonviolently, I want to do whatever it takes for the gospel because I want to be identified with Jesus. If your circumstance doesn't change while you pray, your prayer is changing you. God is changing you through that situation. Now somebody might ask, I can't get out of a bad problem. Can you give me some practical tips on what to do if I'm in a bad situation? If you can't get out, let me, let me put it this way. If you can get out, get out. If you can't get out, change your perspective. In that moment or in that place of fear or dread that is not in your control, the thing that you and I must learn to do is to say, God, help me change my perspective if I can't get out. God, what are you teaching me in this moment? What are you teaching me in this situation? What can I learn from this? What can I take from this? Are you trying to change me? Jesus has a question for us. Why do you fear? Don't you know that I'm working in you? Don't you know that I'm doing something in your life? Fourthly, there's a question about authenticity. Jesus said in Luke 6, 46 to 49, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? See, Jesus is also interested in in our authenticity. He's interested in what we say, but he's also interested in what we do. He's interested in asking us, you say that you're a follower, you say that you are my follower, but do your actions really portray that? James 1.22 says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourself. The reality is, is that we could be involved in all kinds of activities, all kinds of church events, all kinds of ministries, all kinds of things in the church, and not have a deep relationship with the Lord and not be doers of the word. And all of that is meaningless at that point. Because what Jesus is really after is for us to be doers of the word. And what that means is that we Live like Jesus lived. The Apostle John wrote in his epistle, he who says that he remains in him must live 
as he lived. We are to live the way that Jesus lived. We are to emulate him in his actions, in his speech, in the way that he treated people, in our love for humanity. And I'll close with this last question. Another question that Jesus asks us this morning is a question about our affections. The Bible says in John 21, 15, do you love me more than these? You see, Peter had failed miserably. He, he denied Christ. He was looking to Jesus face to face, in front of Jesus, right before the crucifixion. And right around the time when the rooster crowed, Jesus' prophetic words were fulfilled when he said, Peter, you will deny me three times. And Peter denied Jesus, and he failed miserably after all those years of seeing the miracles of Christ, the goodness of Christ in his life. And now Jesus, after his resurrection, is on the seashore, and he's having breakfast with Peter, and he's having breakfast with his disciples, and he asks Peter, do you love me more than these? Because what Jesus is really after and he's a God of second chances and third chances. He's after your heart. The question is not, will you do everything for God? Yes, that's a good thing too, but do you really want to be with him? Do you really want to spend time with him? Martha and Mary were together, and Mary was at the feet of Jesus. Martha was busy, and Jesus told Martha, there is only one thing that's necessary. There's only one thing that's necessary and Mary has chosen it. It will not be taken away from her. There's one thing that's necessary in this life right now in this season and what's necessary is that we are with Jesus, that we spend time with Jesus, that we get to know Jesus, that we begin to seek him like we haven't sought him before. A love for Christ is the most important thing and it's the only effective motivation for service to him. It's the only thing that ultimately matters. Do you love me? Do you really love me? Question is, how can my love be real for Christ? What does that look like? Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, it's the if that comes first. If you love me, if you really love me, then you will. The commandments follow the if. You see, the love of God needs to be experienced in our lives in order for us to love him by keeping his commandments. The, the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That's what the Bible says. And so when we experience the baptism in the Holy Spirit, the fire of the Holy Spirit, the presence of God in us in a supernatural way, that's when the love of God is really understood. When we read the scriptures and we hear God speaking to us and we sense his love, that's when the love of God is experienced and that's when things begin to change and we start to keep his commandments and we, our values change, our desires change, and our outlook changes in life. Beloved, these are just five fundamental questions that Jesus asks his listeners, his disciples, Again, what is a profit if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? Do you want to get well? Why are you afraid in this season of time? Why do you call me Lord and do not do what I say? And lastly, do you love me? Do you love me? I want you to picture that Jesus is 
right there in front of you as you're listening to me close this message this morning and he's looking into your eyes and he's looking into my eyes and he's asking, do you really love me? Let's pause for a couple seconds here. Do you really love him? Does he mean something to you? Because if he does, then nothing else matters. When he really means something to you, when he's really got a hold of you, fear, fear is exterminated. When Jesus is there, the Bible says perfect love casts out fear. When the love of Jesus is there, when you know him, there's no fear. Fear is banished. Think about my mom. I'll close with this. There must have been a love of God in her life many years ago when she was working at a university in Romania. And there was a, a security officer, a communist party leader participant who came in and he said, where are the Christians meeting? And my mom responded, I'm not Judas. It was a time of persecution. It was a time of persecution. There must have been something in her heart towards Jesus. And he lifted his hand and he was about to strike her. And he put it down and turned around and left, angry. Fear is always at the door. It's always trying to trap you and overcome you. And so the thought came, well, it's going to happen to me now. I'm going to lose my job. Am I going to be persecuted? Will I be sent to a camp? Right? But she was brave. Some time goes by and she's back at work the next day and she's in front of the elevator. The elevator opens. She walks in. Right beside her walks in the top guy at the university. And he's there inside the elevator with her and he looks at her and says, hello. She says, hello. What's your name? So and so. What do you do? This and that. And he says, come into my office. He goes into his office with her and talks to her. Figures out she's a, a bright woman and he says, hey, right hand guy. I don't know who that guy was. Come over here. And so he came into the office and this top guy at the university said, listen, this woman here, there's something about her. I want you to ensure that everything she needs is given to her and that you protect her here at this university. Why? Because when the love of Jesus is in you, when you love your brother so much that you won't, Jesus is faithful. He comes in and he, and he takes his sheep and he protects them and he watches over them and he does a work for them. He, there's an unseen realm around us in which Jesus is busy fighting with his angels and through his spirit to protect his people. But you know what he's after? 
He's after people who are not just content with sitting on a pew Sunday after Sunday and having a dead religion. He's after a people, a group, a body of believers who will be through thick and thin faithful regardless of the circumstances. Regardless of the issues in life, regardless of the suffering, people who will be faithful until the end, people who see something of him and love him dearly. People who want to be with him, people who look to him. So who is he for you in closing? The last question is this, and I'll leave you with this and we'll pray. Who do you say that I am? Who is he for you? When war rages on in Ukraine and Russia, when COVID is still around, who is Jesus for you? Is he still your one and only? Is he still your one and only? I invite you to stand to your feet together with me this morning. Is there anyone here this morning who knows that they need more of Christ in their lives and they want to set their eyes, their gaze on him this morning? Maybe you've been looking elsewhere. Is there anyone here this morning? Is there anyone here this morning who wants to do that? I do, because I know that God's cure, God's cure is a person. God's solution is a person. His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. And so I invite you this morning as we close our eyes and pray to rededicate your life to him, to say, Lord, these questions maybe were for me or one of them was for me. Lord, I want to respond this morning. I want you to be my Lord, my Savior, my all in all. God, walk with me out of this place, Lord. Whatever you want of me, I give it to you. Let that be your prayer this morning and may God bless us all. Amen. Hallelujah.